When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hi, I'm Anoush. And I'm Andrew. And I'm Rachel. And on today's episode of the New Statesman podcast, we discuss Rishi Sunak versus Liz Truss. And you ask us, why are people behind Liz Truss? We don't get it. So let's start with the final two who are now going head to head for the hearts of the Tory members, Rishi Sunak and Liz Truss. How did it come to this? It came to this because there's been a very, very savage campaign uh, against other candidates, particularly against Penny Mordaunt, particularly waged through the Daily Mail and I think directed quite heavily from the centre of government number 10 or wherever, because Boris Johnson still hangs over this contest as a, as a personality. He is furious about his defenestration, feels it's bitterly unfair and blames Rishi Sunak in particular for it. And therefore, he wants to get Rishi, anyone but Rishi, and it's pretty clear that Liz Truss is his candidate. She didn't resign from his cabinet, and she's, she's already said that she wishes he hadn't gone. So this is the sort of Johnson candidacy. And Penny Mordaunt was the other one. So because Number 10 wanted it to be Rishi versus Liz, and then Liz to win, they went for Penny Mordaunt in a pretty ferocious and extraordinary way. Right, OK. And, then, and that sort of suggests that Liz Truss is a little bit trapped, isn't she? Because she does have to make these statements about how she regrets his defenestration because she's got this huge backing behind her. I'm not sure trapped. She's certainly in quite a narrow position in the sense that she has got and will have on her side. It'll matter an awful lot now. I suspect people like Lord Crudders, the Tory donor, the, the Johnson machine, the Johnson loyalists, Rhys Mogg, Nadine Norris, all of those kind of people. And yet, to win in the Tory party membership, she has to show that she has changed, she is different. And so the way she's doing this is to focus entirely on the economy, which is, of course, Rishi Sunak's bit, and say everything was fine, by and large, except for the economy, which Rishi Sunak, that man, got wrong. That's how she's playing it. Right, OK, so she is both trying to paint herself as the change candidate, but also the kind of Johnson continuity candidate, Rachel. Do, do you think that will wash with the members? It looks like in polling they are keener on her than sooner. Interestingly, looking at the members, quite a few of them seem to want Boris Johnson to stay. There's that insane petition that I think has got 4,000 signatures of Conservative Party members saying that they think that Boris Johnson should be an option for them to vote for on the ballot. Now, obviously, that's not going to happen, but I think that's worth keeping in mind that if your electorate is entirely made up of Conservative Party members and Conservative Party members 
feel a lot warmer towards Boris Johnson than, say, Tory MPs do or even the rest of the country do, then sort of playing up to being the heir to Boris Johnson, you can see why that, that might look like a good mm. strategy. Interestingly, though, in one of the debates, all the candidates were asked if they'd put Boris Johnson in their cabinet and they all refused and they all didn't put their hands up. So for her to, to now to now be like, oh, I, I wish he hadn't gone, but I wouldn't trust him anywhere near my government. She's trying to play both sides. Absolutely, Rachel. And there is this great swirling miasma of hypocrisy over all those Tory <laughs> MPs who had written letters saying this man has got to go. He's not fit to be prime minister, standing up, clapping, and some of them in tears after his performance at PMQs. So the Tory party is deeply emotionally split. We talk of buyer's remorse. This seems to be one of the first examples of seller's remorse. <laughs> and Rachel, you've written about this, and let's explain to our listeners a bit about what happens next. It's actually just about 175,000 Tory members yep. who get to choose who wins and who goes to number 10. And you, you've argued that actually that shouldn't be the way to go about it. Well, I argued that it would actually weirdly be more democratic if the vote was restricted to fewer people, if it was restricted just to... Conservative MPs, 350 or Conservative MPs, because they at least have their positions because they are representing parts of the country and that's their job. Now, you can, you can argue about how successfully they do that job, but theoretically, you're an MP, your constituents have sent you to Parliament to represent their interests. The 170,000 Conservative Party members aren't representing anyone except themselves. They're not accountable to anyone mm. except themselves. They're also... And, and, and no judgment on them for this, but they are incredibly unrepresentative of the country. They are older, whiter, more male than the rest of the country. And They're, more southern. And de more very much southern. more southern, more concentrated in the south of England, more middle class. This is not a let's get 170,000 random people from across the UK and, and see what they think. There are very particular demographics. So how you can argue that it's democratic mm. to allow them to choose the next prime minister who will be the prime minister for all of us. I know those are the rules. I know that's how parties work. I know it's very unfair to say, uh, oh, let's change the rules now because I don't like them. Mm. But it is worth thinking about who has the power and why. It certainly is. And this is a very rare moment because the new statesman through Rachel Cunliffe is now on exactly the same side as the Times as represented by Lord Danny Finkelstein, mm. who makes yeah. the very same arguments as a Conservative from inside the party, and he also argues that this is the wrong way to do it, because actually the MPs are more representative of the country at large, as you've just said, than the party members are. It's not true quite, however, that the rules can ever be changed, because they have already indicated they're going to change the voting rules in this in a way that is both interesting and, I suspect, benefits Rishi Sunak. So we all say, you know, one party member gets one vote, and the votes go out by post, and they arrive on doorsteps and doormats, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and then they're filled in and sent back. But all party members are now likely to get a digital or online vote as well. So if they vote for, shall we say, Liz Truss next week, and then they look at the various debates and they think, actually, do you know what? Sunak is really good. He's much more fluent. I can see him more as prime minister. I might have made a mistake. Then they can, as it were, reverse and heckle their own vote online. This seems to me a very, very complicated and potentially nightmarishly complicated way of counting votes right at the end of the process. But they've already seemed to have tilted the rules 
as I say, I think slightly in Sunak's favour. Yes, because I've been looking into Tory members and what they actually want. And mm. what's interesting is, while obviously Tory MPs do represent their constituents, unlike these unrepresentative people in the country, they are actually more economically towards the centre than Conservative MPs. So they're not ideological zealots in the way that we might think they are, particularly on issues like more funding for the NHS, because they're more likely to interact with it. As we've said, they are older and more funding for law and order as well. So it may be that a very radical economic pitch from Liz Truss, as she's already laid out, might not necessarily be the most attractive thing to them. So I, I do think that it's a bit more open than the polling suggests. That's really interesting. And I think, Anoush, you're going around the country, you're going to be talking to a lot of Tory members. Yes. But your point about the NHS is a really good one. They use the NHS. And, of course, they're on pensions. So they're going to be particularly yeah. sensitive about inflation. You know, they've probably paid off their properties, but they may have mortgages as well. So inflation is a really big issue for them. And the more Sunak talks about the need to get down inflation, the more they'll like that, I think. Yes. And I remember doing the same thing last time in 2019. And what a lot of them would tell me was they didn't really like Boris Johnson or his style. They didn't particularly trust him, but they thought he could win an election. So that might be why Rishi Sunak is making this big mm. play of the fact that he is more popular among the electorate than Liz Truss. And also in some polling more popular than Keir Starmer, mm. which is, of course, the person who either of them might face in a general election. I think as this plays out over August, it's going to be, as it were, the guns of August, the war of August. Pollsters are going to play a much, much bigger role in it than they do in most elections even, because everybody's going to be watching the YouGov polling of the general electorate to try and work out which of these two candidates can beat Labour. But I have to say, so far, a couple of weeks into this Conservative candidate, overwhelmingly the political winner is Keir Starmer. Right. Yes. Do you agree with that, Rachel? Uh, I think we've seen a lot of blue on blue already and we're only going to see more of it in the debate on Sunday night. It was very much Rishi and Liz tearing chunks out of each other and they were properly going for it. I mean, she was uh, pointing out the, the COVID support loan fraud and he had that quite awkwardly delivered jibe at her, do you regret more supporting Remain or, or, mm. or being a, a Lib Dem? Mm. But you've basically got two of the most high profile cabinet ministers of, of Boris Johnson's government shouting at each other about how terrible that government was <laughs> yeah. uh, and about how you know we're in economic crisis and you don't know how to deal with it. Well, you stayed in the government, you don't know how to deal with it either. And you can totally picture Labour just keeping a show reel of all of it, keeping some <laughs> archive footage, you know, having clips of Liz Truss saying this government hasn't got a clue what it's doing and using that in the next election campaign. Actually, that is one of the reasons why Conservative MPs did really want a leadership contest and put it off for as long as possible, even as Boris Johnson was getting progressively worse, because they know that this is just ammunition mm. for mm. Labour. Mm. As was shown in PMQs, quite, because he quite used right. each of their lines. And it was, it was quite a clever tactic by yeah. Starmer, just, well, not clever, fairly obvious tactic, but, <laughs> but as Rachel Effective. says, yeah. glorious ammunition. He used it bit by bit, but it was a completely classic PMQs because... Johnson just ignored all of that, ignored every single question and made some, dare we say it, quite good jokes at Keir Starmer's expense, the useless human bollard and all the rest <laughs> of it, which people took away remembering. But that's not going to go on for much longer now. No. Let's talk, let's talk a bit about that PMQs because he signed off with Hasta la vista, Vista, baby, baby, yeah. uh, from The Terminator. And the other classic line from that film is, of course, I'll be I'll back. I'll be back. <laughs> Will he be back, do we think? He certainly wants people to think that it's a possibility because as long as people... I think it's a, even a half possibility he has influence and power over the direction of the Tory party. I was talking to somebody quite close to him who says he genuinely doesn't get it. 
he genuinely thinks he did the right things over the pandemic. He did the right thing over the Ukraine war. Brexit had to be delivered. The big stuff he, he feels he got right. And he doesn't see how someone who got all of that right can be brought down by nonsense about some sex pests and some parties. Right. So from his point of view, the betrayal narrative is already there in his head, I think. He was brought down by midgets, by, by the herd. When he called Tory MPs in his farewell speech, the herd, mm. that suggests he sees them as kind of more or less unthinking cattle charging from one direction to another. Now, we've seen a fair amount of charging around the House of Commons, <laughs> but, you know, that did not go down well. And the number of Tory MPs who are really, really angry that he's going to try and do the backseat driving mm. or try and influence things is quite high. I mean, that, you know, they have not forgotten yet why they got rid of him. And however many good jokes he makes in the House of Commons, they haven't forgotten either. Right, OK. And he also, even more sinister, perhaps, than calling his colleagues the herd, he did invoke the deep state, which is sort of catnip to conspiracy theorists, isn't it? It, it is. It's a very, very Trump-like line, this idea that people who have been elected into power can't actually exercise that power because there's this hidden shadowy world of nameless officials you, who are working against them. John Elledge, one of our New Statesman columnists, has just co-written a book specifically on conspiracy theories uh, and conspiracy theorists and why people fall for them and how it all works. And he's written a piece about that line, the sort of the deep state and how useful and effective it is for people in power because suddenly you've got power, you don't deliver on what you said you were going to. Your voters say, hang on, you said you're going to do X, Y and Z, you were Prime Minister, why didn't you? And if you can say, oh, I tried to, but actually there was this hidden enemy that stopped me, it wasn't my fault, mm. that's a very effective narrative. It's also a very dangerous narrative. You can already hear Liz Truss in her first interviews, as we're on the last two candidates, talking about the need to kind of push the blob mm. and deal with the civil service blob. Blob is a softer way of saying deep state, I think, in yeah. all of this. Of course, if we weren't working for the New Statesman and signed up to all of this, we would be able to inform people listening to this podcast or watching it that in, indeed Whitehall is populated by shape-shifting lizards controlled by Bill Gates, <laughs> because, because that's what they think. Yes, uh, but our hands are tied. Our hands are tied. We're not allowed to say that. Yeah. But it's true, guys. It's really true. It's honestly true. There are shape-shifting lizards all around us, and they're working for the deep state. I have personally been called an elitist lizard. I'm not sure about either of you. That's my favourite Twitter insult an ever. Lizard. An elitist lizard, yeah. <laughs> Not one of the more lizards of the people. I, and I am, wearing, I am wearing green today, so I've, make of that what I've you will. I've been called many Anglo-Saxon things, but not that one. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so uh, lastly, a lot of this, a lot of what we've been reporting on and talking about may feel quite esoteric to members of the public. I've been speaking to someone who's been focus grouping a lot of Tory voters in blue wall and red wall mm. seats about this leadership race. Yeah. And what a lot of them say is... What, these, what all of these figures are talking about has nothing to do with the things that are at the front of their minds, i.e. the rising bills crisis, as I think you've called but it. But they are you? completely wrong about that, Anusha, I think, because as we started off by saying earlier on, there is a huge economic divide between these two candidates. And if you're at all concerned about inflation, if you're worried about paying your bills, then these two very, very different economic strategies, big, big, unfunded tax cuts paid for by more borrowing, or more or less where we are at the moment, more of the same and trying to clamp down and kind of clench until the worst is over. Those are very, very different strategies. And we will discover in due course that one of them works. We won't know about the other one because only one candidate will win. But this is a massive choice for the country that's going on. So it's not esoteric, it's real. And people are going to feel it in their daily bills and their daily lives. Yes. And, and also you've written in your most recent piece about the fact that climate change has not been... <gasps> 
tackled properly by the candidates so far. And of course, some of yeah, these focus groups that, that I've been talking to, to, to this focus group for about were happening on these days where they were sitting in 40 degrees. Do you know what? It felt to me almost as if the planet was heckling the Tory leadership. <laughs> sort of knocking on the windows. If ever there was a moment where the real world was trying to remind politicians of what really matters, <laughs> because, you know, you're quite right. They have not been talking about climate change. And when they do, it's in kind of embarrassed, apologetic tones. I'm terribly sorry we have this green levy. We'll try and get rid of it as soon as possible. I'm terribly sorry we have these ridiculous esoteric targets about carbon neutral by 2050 and all the rest of it. They're not trying to lead us in any direction in terms of changing our lives. They're not confronting the scientific truths in a frank and open way because they're so scared of the Tory members who, in a poll, would climate change 10th out of 10 in terms of the things that matter to them, right down at the bottom. I think it's incredibly serious. And I just hope that the, the coincidence that, you know, that the, the roads were melting, airport runways were melting, fires were raging across East London and around motorways up and down Britain in a way that we have never seen before, will get these two last candidates right at the end and think, hold on a second, this is something that we do need to address more seriously than they've done so far. OK, well, well, we'll be keeping an eye on that and everything else as the leadership election progresses. Hi, it's Anoush here. This is just a reminder that as a podcast listener, you have the option of subscribing to the New Statesman with a very special offer. You can subscribe for just a pound a week. That's 12 weeks for £12. If you go to newstatesman.com forward slash podcast offer. We'll be right back. From the New Statesman comes a new podcast, Audio Long Reads, the best of our reported features and essays read aloud. Featuring writing from our authors, including Ian McEwan on wrestling with Orwell's Inside the Whale. Might we reasonably assume that there is no longer an inside to the whale? That the creature lies stranded on the beach, as whales sometimes are? That the guts and blubber and ribcage are on display? A year inside GB News with Stuart McGurk. At first, the problems weren't ideological, but practical, technical, and quite, well, obvious. And Maria Wilczek on Belarusian football fans who took on Alexander Lukashenko. After the August 2020 protests, hundreds of ultras were roughed up and held in custody. One was later found dead in suspicious circumstances. Ease into the weekend with our audio long reads, published every Saturday morning. Just search... Audio long reads from the New Statesman, wherever you get your podcasts. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. And now it's time for a section we like to call... You Ask Us. <laughs> Lovely. So we have a question from Jack. He asks, why trust? What are the qualities that her backers think would make her a good PM? 
what am I missing? Um, <laughs> which I think is a good question. A good question. And actually, it's important to point out that a lot of the public still don't actually know who she is. There's quite low name recognition for all of the candidates that we've had so far, apart from Rishi Sunak. So it's a good question. It's a very good question. First of all, she's done a lot of government departments. She's been at the cabinet level for really quite a long time in different jobs. So this case that she makes, I can deliver. I'm a grown up. I know how to do the job. She, you know, there's something in that. But I think more important, she has understood and tapped into the fact that for Tory members, as well as the rest of the country, times are really hard. They yearn for a radical choice. They yearn for something different. Obviously, the Labour Party wants to offer something different, something radical. And she's trying to jump ahead and say, no, 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 I have got, I have got a better answer. And she's trying to do it on economics and therefore in a way that doesn't too offend the old regime of the Johnson loyalists. Mm -hmm. And actually, to be fair to her, she she has always been ideologically committed to her vision for the economy. She was one of the number of MPs who wrote the Britannia Unchained sort of neo-Thatcherite treaties. That was the one that said the country was full of idle, lazy so-and-sos who yes, hung around at home and didn't work properly. Yeah, which I imagine, you know, Labour will be repurposing if they do have they to face her in a general election. But, you know, she does have a commitment to her values. She has a genuine intellectual vision, which, you know, can't be said for every Conservative MP. It certainly can't be said for Boris Johnson, who was sort of <laughs> the opposite. He was an ideological chameleon. Although Liz Truss has been as well. She's been in the Cabinet under Cameron, under May, under Boris Johnson in all those different jobs. Uh, we know that she supported and campaigned for Remain and has now reinvented herself as the most Brexity Brexit candidate that there is. So she does have a, an economic ideology, but she's also very flexible about the details and the things around the edges. Mm. I don't think you can talk about the appeal of, of Liz Trust, the Tory members, without talking about Thatcher. It's very obvious that she is modelling herself uh, on Margaret Thatcher. You can see that from the way she's changed her hairstyle. I think she's had uh, vocal coaching to make her voice lower, no, she which, has. which uh, obviously yeah. Margaret Thatcher did as well. She went to to Russia uh, wearing a, a, a big fairy hat. Uh, <laughs> she sat on a tank. She sat on yeah. a tank. Uh, it was, I think it was actually quite warm in Russia when she was wearing that hat. <laughs> and so she, both in terms of visuals, but also in terms of ideology, that's kind of what she's channeling. What's kind of interesting is that Rishi Sunak is also channeling that too. And there's this kind of battle going on to be the heir to Thatcher. And obviously Thatcher did a lot of deregulation and a lot of tax cuts. But the economy was very different then. And the case that Rishi Sunak is sort of trying to make is that Thatcher was fiscally responsible and that were the great lady to still be with us today and be in charge, the decisions that she'd make on the economy now mm. were not necessarily the same decisions that she made in the 80s and therefore actually being the, the responsible candidate, not just mm. having a whole load of unfunded tax cuts and borrowing is, is a better service to her legacy. And indeed, there was a very interesting intervention by William Hague, another former Tory leader, writing in The Times where he said, he had actually spoken to Margaret Thatcher quite a lot when he was Tory leader about these issues and she was completely against unfunded tax cuts. She thought tax cuts, great, but you have to show mm. how you pay for every penny of them, just as Labour has to show how it's going to increase public spending. So I think that's going to be an interesting battleground as they sort of play out who has the right to her legacy. Kind of really interesting that the Conservatives have had quite a few Prime Ministers since Margaret Thatcher, but she is still the one yes. that they mm. that they always resort to. The other reason I think that Liz Truss appeals, and this might be a niche view, because she is very 
strange as a person and gaff prone and I'm sure we could spend hours talking about all the different gaffes and the the silly things that she said on TV but she does have energy she is able to talk with sort of optimism and enthusiasm she's a bit tiggerish I, I would say and I think if you're a conservative member who is looking for something positive and you've got the kind of Boris Johnson boosterism of well, come on we can do this we're Britain we just have to really put our minds to it and aren't we great bounce 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 that there is something appealing yes, about and that. I think even with those sort of slightly awkward parts of her speeches that now go viral on TikTok like the pork markets clip pork um, markets. Uh, I think she's sort of made a virtue out of that hasn't she she's got yeah. a bit of a cult of personality around her when you go to Tory conference the events that she's talking about on the fringe or even her her speech to the conference floor there's often cues sort of going around the conference hall because and- they know they're not going to be bored they know it's not going to be a standard completely predictable performance even if some bits go a bit wonky you know <laughs> yeah. and I, I completely agree with Rachel. I think it's the the sort of enthusiasm. I mean, to do these jobs, you have to have abnormal amounts of energy and self-belief, and she certainly has those. Okay, well, I hope that's answered your question, Jack. Thanks very much, both of you. Thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Anusha Kellyan, and my colleagues, Andrew Marr and Rachel Cunliffe. We're produced by May Robson, with assistance by Bill Alali. And our music is Devil with the Devil, licensed under Creative Commons. Thanks so much for listening. And don't forget to leave us a nice review and subscribe. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms.